0: Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine, with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. Today we're setting aside our usual call-in format for an excursion to Scotland, another way to practice the magic of community radio, offering a story that we hope will be of interest to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and a special Talk of the Towns. In July of 2012, a diverse group of educators, artists, and writers trekked along an old drove route in the Cairngorm Mountains of Scotland, a distance of 60 miles. From Newtonmore up Glen Feshy and out onto the plateau at Minigeg, down Glen Brewer to Blair Castle, over high ground south of Beniglo and then along Glen Fearnet, Kirk Michael, site of a traditional cattle tryst or meeting place for the sales of cattle and other livestock. The last time this route had seen drovers and cattle was a century ago. We were assembled under the banner of Spey Green, a 12-year-old educational trust dedicated to what they call creative journeys, getting teachers, artists, and others out of doors to share different perspectives on common experience to discover a sense of place. People and livestock have made journeys together since before our fixed-placed agriculture took root, following grass and water, going to market. In Scotland, starting in the 1600s, small farmers, or crofters, in the north and in the Hebrides, would send one or two cows south each year. The drovers, who collected cattle at individual crofts and herded them to markets in the south, were both cowboys and bankers trusted to exchange hoofed wealth for coin or banknote, and return safely to the highlands and islands. The drovers were accompanied by their dogs, and sometimes by sturdy horses who carried men and gear. Having been a participant in the first creative journey, a crew trip down the Spey River in 2000, I was invited to take part in the drovers' journey in 2012, and I brought my Marantz recorder along. Come with us and hear the impressions of my fellow drovers and what they took from the experience. First, let's hear from Joyce Gilbert, who created Spagrian following a career-changing educational journey down the Yukon River with her mentor, Bob Jickling.
1: Well, I um, work for an organization called the Royal Scottish Geographical Society Uh, it's 120 years old and at its heart is Journey and it's about journeys that people made in the past, journeys that people are making now and also importantly journeys that people are planning for the future but I also wear another hat because I'm a trustee with a tiny educational trust called Spagrian which I've been involved with for the last 12 years and Journey is at the heart of what Spagrian does as well so it's almost at this stage in my life brought two things together that just makes perfect sense and this particular journey, we wanted to set off from a point that we had um, done a journey down the Spey 10 years ago, but instead of going north in canoes as we'd done at that time, we decided we'd come south on ponies and reenact the journeys that the Highland drovers would have taken um, 200 years ago. And very few people know about the Highland Rovers, and yet it was such an important part of the Scottish economy and also just the way of life of many, many people in the Highlands at that time. And although we only took two cattle with us on our Highland Drove, um, at that time they took several thousand, and uh, some of the droves were said to be six or seven miles long. Um, So that's really what's behind the journey that we've been taking this week.
0: Three community exhibits were set up along the drover's journey, one at the start in Newton Moor at the Highland Folk Museum, again in the shadow of Blair Castle, and finally in Kirkmichael. In each, writer and educator Terry Williams introduced material from the new Highland Livestock Heritage Society exhibit on drovers at the Highland Livestock Mart near Inverness. Terry spoke of the importance of the drover's role in the Highland economy.
2: Right from the start, of course, cattle were wealth. It's a bit like uh, the Arabs and the camels, mm. you know. And this was what the cattle reaving was all about. Mm-hmm. You know, um, your livestock was your, was your worldly goods. Mm. Um, and yes, when the, uh, the crofters, of course, would have one or two cows and they'd breed from them and those beasts would go off to market. Now, in some cases, their landlord would force them to sell to him at his price and then he'd do the deal with mm. the drovers. Yeah. In other cases, they might send their cattle directly with a small drover who would then go on to, but without the income from that, they couldn't pay their rent. Mm. Without any rent, they were evicted, and end, end of story. Mm. That would mean emigration if they could afford it, mm-hmm. otherwise it was starvation or trek down to Glasgow and live with relatives down mm. there or whatever. Mm. Um, so yeah, they were totally vital. Mm and also vital to Scotland because there was a huge trade right down to Smithfield in London.
0: Mm. Alastair Strachan was kind of a living exhibit at each of the community events, dressed in the traditional Fillamore or great kilt, with musket and sword. I spoke with him and Blair about how a drover would have equipped himself.
3: Uh, I'm wearing I'm wearing a, a rather fetching little white shirt uh, made of cotton. Um, cotton, of course, would come from America. Would bring it all the way over there, uh, and it would be woven here. But before that, they would have worn linen. They'd have uh, won the flax, woven the flax themselves. Yeah. Uh, the I'm wearing a rather thick pair of socks and it's strange to believe although this is Scotland it does get hot here Uh, and my legs are actually very very warm because the socks are thick woolen socks and I'm of course wearing the Fillamore the the Great Kilt Uh, the Great Kilt is this in this case is about seven or eight yards of uh, material. Uh, it's not any particular tartan um, and I did the demonstration earlier on with the, the tartan I used there is the oldest official tartan with 1725. So tartan is a fairly modern invention. Uh, uh, young Mr. Sir Walter Scott has, the, has a lot to do with tartan becoming a popular item. Uh, the plaid is folded so that you've got your pleats in the back. Um, your extra length of material can either be put over your shoulders to keep you warm, you could put it over your head to keep you dry or at night, you wrap yourself up and you play. You never take it off. Um, it doesn't get smelly because it's got a little bit of breeze about it. You have your plates at the back, which trap the air, keep the heat in. Uh, the loose ends you fold over your shoulders. You clasp them together with a, a brooch, uh, such as I have here, which you can't, of course, see in the radio. Um, but the the plates keep the air and they trap the air, and you keep you nice and warm. And and today, as you'll, you'll back me up here, Ron, it's very, very warm today. Uh, and I'm actually quite comfortable because I have my built in air, air conditioning that when I get too hot I just give my, uh, what we here in Scotland call my behoochy uh, I give it a little swing and the folds move about, they move the air and it, it freshens the nether region shall we say yeah. uh, so it's it's a very practical piece of kit uh, it's all held together with a belt with a sparring at the front in which I keep all my essentials, uh, all the drovers would carry a, a, a tool uh, for, for bloodletting for the cattle. You would bleed the cattle, mix it with your oatmeal, and you make your, your black pudding. Um, like all drovers of the time, I do carry my mobile phone. Um, but that's for emergencies only. Uh, I also carry weapons. I carry uh, normally carry a musket, one-shot musket, uh, in this case a brown best musket, which uh, would give me an immediate line of defence if we are attacked. Um, what you do with that, you fire one shot, you throw it away. You don't waste time reloading it, you draw your longsword, some may carry a claymore. Claymore, for those that don't speak Gaelic, is a Gaelic word uh, and simply means big sword. So the claymore mine, I've never quite worked out how that works. Um, You can either carry a big sword a two-handed sword or a basket-hilted broadsword like I'm carrying today. It protects your hand and it's a very effective weapon. Uh, In my offhand I would carry a targe or a target which is a shield. Uh, and that is used for buffeting enemies away. I may have a spike fitted to it. I can use that to stab enemies and while I'm doing that I can take a third one out with my dirk. Um, so Highlanders are quite scary in, in many ways.
0: And what what uh, enemies would they have? Why would you need defensive of, uh, gear and weapons on a drove? Uh, well,
3: the whole point of the drove is, is to move the wealth of the Highlands and the wealth of the Highlands isn't money, it's cattle. Um, Money is something that's very rarely seen, particularly further down the social chain. Your lords and your earls and your dukes have maybe got cash. But further down, when you get down to your taxmen and your clansmen and your your subsistence farmers, they do everything in kind, they trade in kind. Uh, As a drover, what we would do a couple of months before uh, we start the drove is we go around and we start to build our herd and how we do that is we trade with local farmers, we pick up one cow here, two there, maybe ten at one township, and then it's out to individual farmstists. Until you've got a herd of maybe a hundred head, uh, then you take that. And you, And the thing is, it's the wealth of islands, it's, it's money on the hoof, and other people know that. And it's a fairly lawless land, uh, and other people are out to get your cattle. And as a drover, you have to be very trustworthy. Uh, and it turns out that many of the drovers may not have always been drovers. They may have had another life, and they may also have another life when they finish droving their particular herd. They might go and raid somebody else's, take it off them, and and drive it down to the, the cattle trust. So you need to be prepared to defend your herd. Uh, the banknotes came about. Obviously, you can't, you can't carry a lot of coin about. Um, particularly, you are travelling on foot. Uh, you may be lucky and be one of those that's travelling on horseback, or you may not have ponies with you. So you don't even to carry. You don't want to be carrying great big chests of money. Again, it shows to people that are watching, it's like, wait a minute, they've got lots of cash, let's go and take it off them. With a banknote, you fold it up, you put it in your sparring, it's safe. Uh, people don't see it's a banknote, they don't see it's there. So again, it's, it's small, portable and secure. It's, a, it's security more than anything else, and I think that's probably why they, they came about.
0: Once she had the idea to bring together teachers and artists, musicians, writers, and scientists on a drover's journey, Joyce Gilbert worked with others to plan the trip and its educational components. Spagrian board member Kathy Dale, a freshwater ecologist, worked on the logistics, including scouting the route. But Joyce knew she would need an outfitter, someone comfortable with moving livestock and people over the hills safely. She found Rory Ormiston, the creative force behind Newton Moore Riding Center, which introduced pony trekking to growing Highland tourism interests in the 1970s.
1: Well, of course, without Ruri, we wouldn't have been able to do this at all. And I think because I had the concept of going with ponies, but didn't have that much experience of ponies myself, other than when I was a child, I knew that to undertake a journey that goes to 900 meters in the typical Scottish weather that you get in the summertime, which can be anything from winter to spring, autumn, four seasons in one day, that we would need to have someone who was very, very confident and um, experienced with ponies. And so I came across Ruri, and when we started to have a chat there were just all sorts of things that made connections. So for example, Ruri can trace his ponies back to one of the most famous drovers of them all. So his stud comes from that lineage of ponies, uh, a man called John Cameron from Fort William um, who did have one of these really massive droves and so just from that point I just knew that it was going to be right.
0: Rory's contacts were invaluable in arranging passage across private estates and finding welcome shelter for our tents near the lodges of deerstalkers. Following the drover's journey in 2012 when the BBC wanted some traditional ponies and gear for a visit by the residents of Downton Abbey to the Highlands they found Rory Ormiston a ready partner. But that's another story for another day. Here's Rory describing his family connections both to the Drovers and to Highland
4: Ponies. Um, Our family have been living in the Highlands of Scotland, in Badenoch, for about 150 years. Uh, My great-grandfather came from Glensheel in the west to work in the estate of Gaik so we can trace our connection with the ponies back at least 150 years to the Gaic ponies. Now the ponies at Gaik uh, can also be traced back to the the stud of Cora ponies along at Roy Bridge. There was two mares bought around 1830 to 1840 that feature in the pedigrees of basically everything we've got now and it can be traced down through the years and Cora Hoyley was probably the most famous drover of them all. He was certainly the biggest drover of them all. So we can we feel like we can claim a direct connection with droving through our own livestock, if not through our own bloodlines.
0: Just remind American listeners um, how ponies are used um, current day. Um, they're not droving anymore, but they're certainly part of the working landscape.
4: Well, the first thing I would say for our American audience is that when we say ponies, we don't mean Shetland ponies, small ones. These are Highland ponies. The smallest of them are about 13.2. Um, our ones are, well, they're supposed to be the breed standards up to 14.2, but we've got uh, Highland ponies that are fifteen one, you know, the size of a good working quarter horse. In fact, there's uh, records of the King Ranch in the States uh, importing Highland stallions to put better quarters on their quarter, or not quarters, rear, rear ends on their quarter horses to give them more power. So the Highland ponies are an animal that's been involved in, in livestock management for a long time and, you know, in the past they were used for droving, carrying deer off the hill, working the small crofts or farms that we have here, uh, pack horses like we've done in this trip but now, modern day times, the use for pony trekking, family riding horses, uh, the children can ride them because they're nice and quiet, but so can the father as well. So they're multi-purpose.
0: Um, you have a, a, a great network of people that were so helpful during this um, expedition, if you want to call it that. Um, talk a little bit about um, how you are connected to the estates and to the, to the, the, the stalkers and, and those people we met along the way.
4: Well, it's just it's a it's a rural Highland network, and although it feels like we're a long way from where we started, if you look at the dread lines through the hills, it's not very far at all. And we all have common interests and in ponies and Highland ponies, Highland cattle, uh, deer stalking. Our own family were very much involved in deer stalking right through to my own brother's time when he was younger, and. We supply Highland ponies to most of the the estates that use them and, you know, although Scotland's got five million people in it, when it comes to the the rural side in in the Highlands, there's not that many people and because of that we basically all know each other and if we don't know each other directly we'll have what we call connections and by talking about mutual friends and things you you always uh, strike up a new relationship and uh, everyone will bend over backwards to help each other out.
0: Just, um, for again, for an American audience, talk about deer stocking.
4: Yeah, you guys can go and buy a license or a tag or whatever you do, and you can go out and shoot a deer. We can do that here in the Highlands as well, but normally we we'll have to do it at night time when no one's watching. But all the land is in private ownership here, and the, the culling of the deer is controlled by the private landowner, and that's part of the main business of these large estates that we've passed through. So they'll have uh, usually one or two deer stalkers uh, who are also responsible for the sporting birds, the grouse, the ptarmigan. But uh, deer stalking is a big thing in the Highlands, and you can pay, you know, upwards of three thousand pounds to shoot a good stag, and you've you know accommodation, meals, and things. It's it's uh, a considerable part of the the revenue to these rural communities, but if you want to shoot a stag here then you can't go and buy a license, you have to go through a sporting agency or direct to these estates themselves and uh, arrange to go and, and uh, you'll spend, you know, one day at the least, but most people will go for a week's deer stalking and they're usually guaranteed three or four beasts and they'll go out with a deer stalker who'll guide them and uh, if something goes wrong and you you miss a beast or whatever, then it's the deer stalker's responsibility to hunt and dispatch it uh, after that. And then the ponies come in. There's the states that still use the ponies to take the deer off the hill, and particularly when there's foreign guests and they want to see the whole tradition right the way through. So it's uh, it's different from the states. It's not cabelas and camouflage. It's uh, I suppose it's heritage and tweeds.
0: Among our modern-day drovers was Jean Langhorn, who facilitates community dialogue and action for sustainability. She introduces us to her highland pony, Marigold, her teacher and steady companion.
5: I'm quite an experienced, fit hill walker, and so I wasn't out of my comfort zone in terms of the walking or the wild camping. Or being outdoors all day, that kind of thing. It was, but of course, with ponies, completely different, completely different ball game. So I have learned a lot. But I've had a very good teacher. This is my teacher. This is Mary Gold, who's my teacher.
0: Hello, Mary Gold. Highland
5: pony, and she's been there and done that, and she's very experienced. So my job was a lot of the time is just get out of the way, mm. and just make sure that she didn't trip over her lead rein. Mm. Mm. So a lot of the terrain that we went over, as a hill walker, you just you wouldn't have even stopped your conversation. You would just have carried on walking and found the path. And you know, being in the mist and navigating, you know, and I knew where I was. I know those hills quite well. But you know, that's serious situation that we found ourselves in, trying to find the right path and getting the ponies safely over the soft ground. I wouldn't have anticipated that. You know, I didn't know that was a serious situation until we were in it. And the way we all worked together as a group, looked after each other, looked after the ponies, and the way the ponies looked after us as well.
0: How did you sense Marigold taking care of you? What what, what, with some of the things you observed?
5: She was just so calm. She was so calm. And I've ridden her before. I rode her two years ago. And I knew um, going over rough ground and going through rivers just to give her her head, and also just to make sure she could see in front of her so she knew where to put her feet. So I knew that I shouldn't walk in front of her just to get out of her way. So we, we developed a system where I would just very quickly loosen off the rain and walk behind her and let her pick her own way over rough ground or through rivers. And then my job was just to make sure she didn't trip over the rain and, well, it didn't dangle. So we ended up working quite well together as a team. But I, I feel like I've learned a lot from her because she was just so calm, really. And she was good for the younger ponies too. I think they looked to her and they thought, well, Marigold's not worried, so.
6: Mm.
5: So other people have had different challenges, of course. So I guess for me, it wasn't exactly outside my comfort zone with ponies. I feel fairly comfortable around ponies, but I'm not an experienced horsey person. So I think the biggest thing I've learned the last couple of days is just to be reminded how incredibly intuitive ponies are. And the relationship that I've built up with Marigold, the pony I've been with. Just how sensitive she is and how tuned in she is to humans. So although she's experienced and very mature and calm and sensible, she still looks to me to guide her. And it's just, I find, I feel like I find that quite moving that she trusts me. You know, she's the experienced pony and she trusts me and I just thought what a privilege actually to be with this pony.
0: Sarah Hughes, an artist in residence at Room 13, a student run arts studio near Fort William, also spoke of her relationship with the horses as a key component of her drover's journey.
7: Um, it's, been, it's been really interesting because there's so many different dynamics to it. Uh, um, the, the The physical side of it, as well as the mental side of it and also um the the kind of communication side of it between you and your ponies is really is really really good It's a really really nice warming experience I think because you're sharing a really hard journey with an animal that you seem to be making a connection with and I think that's, um I think that's really important you seem to you and your animals seem to keep keep your, each other going almost because you're so concentrated with uh, keeping keeping the pony happy and safe and, and well fed and and everything else it kind of takes the the harsh harshness of of the journey off they are in the rhythms that it makes and it kind of you know that that spurs off other strange mystical things in in, in my thought process and everything so it, things like journeys i i really fascinating because it's something that's definitely built into us it's so the thing i was thinking about walking yesterday when i was walking yesterday the horses uh, definitely knew and we were coming to the end and one of the things i've been kind of thinking about is you know how, how do they know that how do they know that they're coming to the end because we don't change we're not changing our behavior or we're not consciously changing our behavior so they're either they can tell you know they have so much more information from something we're doing, or is it you know, is it a chemical we're we're giving off almost is it like a scent they're 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 picking up on? Because I couldn't work out. Just thinking about the horse, uh, the pony that I was with yesterday, Tor. Um, he's, he was getting really boisterous and really kind of you know. I know you could tell he knew was something was going to happen, um, and that was really interesting. The fact that you know they're picking, we're not picking. We're not just picking stuff from them, they're definitely picking stuff from us, and it's like a silent communication, Um, and again, it comes down to this kind of repetitive thing, I think, when you're with an animal for a long period of time, you get into a comfort zone, you get into a rhythm, so it all kind of amalgamates together, yeah.
0: Here again is Joyce Gilbert, followed by more reflections from artist Sarah Hughes.
1: But It really is looking at how our relationship with animals has changed, and that we no longer have animals in our lives in the way that we did in the past where we worked in partnership with them and i think that's probably been one of the most challenging things on the journey for people is recognizing that their pony is a partner it's not it's not that people were thinking necessarily they were all machines but you really have to work with the ponies and i mean that's been a, a learning thing for me as well um but just watching how that relationship has um, formed particularly over the more difficult sections of the route where people had to put trust in their wise ponies and not think that as humans that they would know best and once people got into that groove I think that that made an enormous difference and so the relationship between the pony and the, the person they're with is just crucial for this kind of journey very unlike a canoe although you still have to have some kind of partnership with your canoe but it's, it is different
7: the thing I will most remember, mostly remember that I will probably tell a lot of people about is when at the hardest point where um, the, the a couple of the young ponies panicked um, and we were on the side of a hill with the mist that was really low and the rain and the cold um, and then how suddenly we all realised that we had to really think and work together on this because it wasn't just our safety, it was the safety of the ponies and you know Fundamentally, that's what it's about. It's about the safety of the animals. So that was, it was really, really heartwarming and quite heart-wrenching to, you know, when we got across the other side. And this just massive feeling of elation and, and relief was just incredible. You, know, all, you, could, you could see why people might get overwhelmed with emotion because we, we did something that was really, really tough, but we all did it together because we all, we all looked after each other in the ponies. So.
0: Writer Linda Cracknell celebrates and elevates journeys and place in her short stories and radio dramas. She later wrote an article on the Drover's journey for the newsletter of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, but here she speaks of the rhythm of walking with ponies.
6: My The principal difference for me initially was the walking as a, as a bigger group, mm. but the walking as animals has been, made it more different um, than I expected in the sense of the, the kind of there's lots of bonding in lots of different directions mm-hmm. because I was thinking of the bonding as being between the people, which it certainly has been, but there's also been that sense of kind of companionship with the ponies and with individual ponies, which has developed over the mm-hmm. week, even to the point of we've slept next to them every night, and in the night you hear the, you know, you hear or you can feel the, the sort of reverberations of their hooves through the ground and their their funny little squeals and and chomps and that kind of thing and it's just lovely it's lovely sort of sense that they're kind of contented nearby and they have seemed very contented they've had lovely lovely fields to graze in at night and the moving with the animal has actually been more demanding than i expected and i think we've all experienced that um i you know i have ridden a lot in the past but and actually i used to to lead ponies with people on their backs learning to ride um but it was a very long time ago and not on such a long, sustained basis. Um, and it's just the kind of the kind of consideration that has to happen between you and the pony is interesting. And there, it is two-way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to concentrate quite a lot because you're trying to look after the pony. The pony's trying to look after you. And there's this kind of mutual thing going on. And there's a thing about space where you're putting your feet, who gets priority to, to go in the best place, and <laughs> all those issues. And the rhythm, you know, and the, I think I became much more conscious of rhythm, uh, of the rhythm of walking and the pace of walking. We were probably walking a lot of the time slower than we would walk ourselves at a, a natural pace and
0: with more stops. You're listening to the Drovers' Journey, a special talk of the towns program recorded for WERU over a week-long trek in the Cairngorm Mountains of Scotland in July of 2012. Under the sponsorship of Spagrian, an educational trust, a group of teachers, writers, artists, and ecologists followed old routes of the drovers who would have taken cattle from the Highland glens and the Outer Islands to markets in the south. We'll be back with the second half of our program in just a moment. Welcome back to a special Talk of the Towns production called The Drover's Journey, recorded for WERU Community Radio in July of 2012 when your host accompanied a group of teachers, writers, artists, ecologists, and experienced horse handlers along an ancient drove route from Moor to Kirkmichael, just south of the Cairngorm Mountains in Scotland. Kirkmichael was on the route to a larger cattle market in Falkirk, near Edinburgh. Here's how Thomas Gisborne described Falkirk following a visit in 1849.
8: Accompany us to Falkirk Moor on the second Monday or Tuesday in either September or October and witness a scene to which certainly Great Britain, perhaps even the whole world, does not afford a parallel. It's not much understated to say that there were around 100,000 sheep collected. Mr. Patterson, Mr. Seller, Mr. Kennedy and Mr. John Cameron Corrachoyle, each of several thousands. We have heard this last patriarch as 50,000 head of cattle and sheep on his several farms. Even those accustomed to the bustle and haggling of the English fair, would not suspect the magnitude of the transactions. On the moor, adjoining the sheep ground, a wooden penthouse five foot square with the exterior placard announced the Royal Bank of Scotland. Others, like the British Linen Bank and the Commercial Bank, sprang up alongside, where letters of credit are exchanged for large notes. A fenced field for the cattle lies next to Larbert at 200 acres in size. Scots drovers on small, spirited, shaggy ponies used to cattle and sheep mingle with English dealers on large, stout horses which tread with more caution. All are ready to bargain. Many other tents serve broth, beer and drams where deal-making is clinched. The whole field is surrounded by this tented camp, With its huge multitude of cattle dealers, drovers, auctioneers, peddlers, jugglers, gamblers, itinerant fruit sellers, ballad singers and beggars. The uncouth Cumberland jargon and the prevailing Gaelic plus the innumerable provincial dialects mingle in one astonishing roar.
0: At the end of the 2012 Drover's journey, writer and teacher Linda Cracknell spoke about following old routes and leading ponies over the Minnegag Pass.
6: Um, yeah, I was, I was very conscious of that, that we were following old roads and um, some of them very well-made roads and very long-standing roads that you knew in the past had kind of woven lots of communities together mm-hmm. in a way that they, they no longer do. So we were meeting people... Um, in settlements that were very widely spaced, a whole day's walking apart, which wouldn't have been the case um, even a hundred years ago. Um, and i I do really appreciate that sense of walking in in previous footsteps and the kind of re- sense of resonance that you get from that. And I think the point where I felt that most strongly was actually where we came out of an a rather unmade, uh, we really weren't on a path on the on the plateau, on the mm. top of the hill, in mist. And then look, we were all a little bit anxious because there was some quite complex navigation to do. And we were aiming to hit the Minigag Pass, which was, you know, a very old road. That was, that's a road that, um, the pass on the road that was well in use before Wade's road was built over Dramochta And um, there was a cairn which was a wonderful sight and then we realized that it was a white cairn and then as you, we we kind of got nearer to it we could see that there were other white cairns and they were kind of almost kind of glowing in the in the gloom and that to me that was very special i think the way that those cairns kind of led us off that quite bleak plateau um into more kind of familiar territory and out of the mist. And um, I guess a lot of the time when I'm walking, I, am, I do have a sense of following something, whether it's a person or a structure or a story or, or so, you know, someone else's footsteps. And um, this was more of a sense of following collective mm. footsteps mm. because you know that that was a very well-used route in the past.
0: Yes, there was a sense of, of uh, following a route then the, the, on the map. Um, there was going from a double line to a single line, mm. and then to nothing, mm. and then to find a single line again, mm. and to find a double line mm. again. There was a there was a process of stepping off one place yes. into unknown.
6: Yes, and a, and a kind of yes, a bit of a sense of a risk in that, and also um, crossing from valley to valley. Mm. I think appreciated that about this particular landscape was that, that the valleys. Here are so well defined by the glacial mm. formations, uh, quite wide bottomed valleys with lot with good routes along them, which you don't get in all parts of Scotland actually, or or if you do, they're tarmacked, You know, they've become roads, and that's what struck me. I think is that there's this really quite large area of of landscape um, with substantially substantial distance routes um, that you can link together, but if you want to link the valleys, you have to take that risk and right. get off the path, <laughs> and that did feel like a risk with the ponies. Mm-hmm. I would have been more worried if we tried to do that with the cattle, I must mm-hmm. admit.
0: Participants in the 2012 drover's journey included Viv Wood G, who had, two years before, retraced other drove roads from Dunvegan on the Isle of Skye to Smithfield near London with her horses, a distance of 500 miles. Viv often her thoughts about journeys and about traveling with horses. It's sort
9: of in your heart, isn't it? And I can't remember a time when I ever didn't want to take a journeys with ponies. And talking to other people here, Juliet, I was talking to about what inspired me in the first place. And when I was young, I used to read books about um, children who set off on ponies over Dartmoor. And that's what they spent the summer holidays doing. And perhaps that's unrealistic. You know, did they ever do it? But... Certainly when I were a lass it was much easier to do it because there weren't child molesters etc and, and I'd read these books about kids setting off with four ponies in a tent and I just knew that was always what I was going to do and basically I'm still doing it and I don't set out, you know, the journey we've done yes it does stretch you, stretch you a bit, pushes you to the limits but that's not actually what I set out to do I don't set out courting disaster or whatever, but inevitably it seems to happen. So that's all part of it, isn't it? But I think, certainly from my point of view, travelling through the countryside with ponies, there's something really, really magical about it. It's just this whole rhythmic thing. You're travelling slowly. You're very much in tune with the whole landscape all around you. And I walk and I cycle as well, but what I find is that I see far more wildlife when I'm with ponies. And there's something about I am then part of the landscape, which I'm not if I'm walking or cycling. And eagles will soar overhead. I, I saw, when I was riding from Skye to London, I saw three lots of ospreys when people told me there were no ospreys. And deer just come right down near us. They accept me. And they don't if I'm on foot or on a bike. And there's also this thing, we've seen it a bit this trip, that I often feel like the sort of pied piper of Hamelin. You know, because if I open the gates, I could go on a journey, and even at the end of the first day, I'd have hundreds of animals following me. It just seems to be sort of the natural kind of thing to do. And I think you said something one day this week about um, the riders in in Tolkien was it Lord of the Rings or whatever and that's what I think it's like you know I I don't really like those Tolkien books but when I saw the film the one thing I really liked was them setting off on a journey into the unknown and and walking with your ponies I don't just ride I walk as as well as as ride and you all fall into step you find that this this sort of rhythm Um, and as traveling companions they're just fantastic
0: Drovers not only brought cattle to market, they brought news from one village to the next, and they told stories. Modern-day storyteller Claire Hewitt sat down in the shade of a large birch tree on the bank of River Tilt in Blair Athol to share her reflections on the role of stories in the lives of drovers and their contemporaries and in our lives today.
10: Stories seem to to gather gather people together in a way that... um, we just don't we just don't have those gatherings so much anymore where where those natural gatherings of coming together to um, take the cows to the field or, or making bread together or uh, gathering to work together you know in a physical those physical that physical work that when you stop there's always someone who can tell a good yarn and you just rest in the land of story for a while, and then you can carry on your work. And in Scotland, anyway, there used to, there was this strong tradition, obviously, of story as there is everywhere in the world. And um, but you'd have the cobbler or the um, the weaver coming into the village, the. the uh, the drovers I'm sure carried their own stories with them wherever they went life stories as well as magical wonder stories and um, hmm. and stories and work seem to weave themselves together because um, you'd maybe have a story that would be told as you were spinning or weaving and uh, the story, the story would carry on until the work was finished. Most of the stories we have have been passed mouth to mouth, eye to eye, and heart to heart, from one person to the next by people coming, coming into your community and telling that story. So this journey that you're doing, well, we're all going doing together in in different ways. Um, is is carrying your own stories, your your journey tales, but with you, your own stories that you bring from your own land, your own, own experiences. They'll be woven into all these children that are gathering today, all the families. They'll take your stories home with them, things that have happened on your journey, and, and they'll also take the stories that I'm telling, which are old travellers tales, which were passed from Um, from place to place as the people travelled and would have been picked up by somebody in the community and on a cold dark night they'll say remember when the travellers remember when the drovers were here remember when uh, the tailor passed through and he left this story behind would you like to listen to it and old and young would sit together by the fire and and lie in the place and that place of story and dream with it it's just such an important thing and the stories teach us so many things about life and journey and how to be brave and how to look to the animals and the birds and the trees and everything in the landscape for support and for, to give you strength
0: Richard Bracken, currently artist-in-residence for Room 13 International near Fort William, spoke about the relationship between landscape and his art and about the differences between experiencing a journey alone and one where people and ponies must work together.
11: The idea of following the drove routes is uh, something that's interested me as an artist um, because my work comes from the the land and the um, that, that's the starting point for most of my work and uh, Scottish history um particularly highland history is um something that's always interested me mm. so
0: when did you begin to see that connection between um, the land and place and and art
11: um, I think towards the sort of later years in college, and that's all just strengthened since moving back up uh, and living in in the highlands and mm. Um, just through, through making work and being outside, uh, the the connections just become more apparent. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you can you help a, a listener see mm-hmm. <laughs> that connection? Uh, talk about um, a particular piece of art that has been inspired by um, the land.
11: Well, one that springs to mind, I suppose, is. Um, uh, a structure that i made using um slates from a a, a small quarry um in a just outside a village called tom and Tow. um this structure is basically a a tent sized roof um and um so it's about eight feet long and six feet wide at its widest um and the the ridge has been made to to sag between the gables so that all the all the slates um splay out and um sort of melt uh, towards the ground and i was interested in the the idea of looking at the the, the permanence of the house um, and the, the the transience of a tent and commenting in some way on how even even what we perceive as permanent i.e. the house uh, is still a, still a transient thing really mm-hmm. in, the, in the grand scheme of things so yeah the the slates almost have a, a kind of rippling um, fabricy kind of effect so, uh, and it, it forms a kind of pass in itself, so, um, you, you know, it's, it's almost like a landscape cr- uh, climbing over the, the scree of the roof, if you like. The, the slates in particular are very rough slates, so um, they are more like stones than slates.
0: Mm. Yes, that, that, um, the fact that the slates are stone that became a useful thing for people... Mm. Um, and you also talked about that um, impermanence um, a little bit in terms of our journey. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that our footprints and the hoof prints of both the cattle and the people will disappear in a landscape that goes on.
11: Mm, yeah um, I, yeah I, f- I find the whole the whole idea of um, our our impermanence uh, a, a really powerful one, mm. um, and it's something that informs a lot of my work. As an artist, Mm.
0: so are there particular aspects of the drove journey that um, stand out for you, um, either um, in the community of people, the community of people and animals? Um, I, yeah, I think the what what stands out for me is the
11: um, just the 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 teamwork and the kind of sociability of the whole the whole group. Um, When when I go out in the hill, it's normally just solo. Um, So. To be in a group with different people with different skills um, is is a a nice change, Um, and yeah, for everyone to have a different a different role and a changing role within the group as well is is nice, Um, and yeah, so you've you've got people who are very much pony people and people who are more used to 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 the walking, Um, but everyone's learning at at the same time. So I think everyone was everyone was challenged in some way. um I I really enjoyed the the way that the whole journey has changed. Um the different landscapes that we've moved through mm. Mm. um and the different weather conditions and um terrain. Mm. Um it's something that I really enjoy experiencing mm. just moving through.
0: When we were on the, the, the Minigig um that was certainly um if you think of a structure of a story, you know there was a peak mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were part of that because you had some skills that other people perhaps didn't. Um, talk about w- what that was like to begin to come into your skill set um, versus the pony seal skill set.
11: Um, yeah, it was it was good good fun uh, navigating uh, through the through the mist on top of the hill. Um, it's yeah, it's nice just to have a. Um, to have for a short time a a kind of important role in in, in the group um um and although it was fairly straightforward uh, navigation it's um yeah enjoyable uh, enjoyable in, in so much as people put their trust in you mm-hmm. um and as i say as uh, as someone who goes out m- more on solo excursions it's mm-hmm. it's nice to have Uh, nice to bring those skills forward into a very useful way. Um, So I was quite um, touched at people's um, appreciation.
0: For Juliet Robertson, an educator and consultant based near Aberdeen, the Drover's journey provided new context for her primary focus, helping teachers get out of doors with their students for learning and play.
12: I've been looking recently at the the life and work of Sir Patrick Geddes who was an eminent biologist, town planner and educator and he he made some remarkable speeches and writings about progressive education and I'm looking at his work now in context of the landscape and also in context of leadership because I'm working with um, another education consultant on looking at innovative ways of providing leadership experience particularly for school principals who have an extremely tough job and how do you cope during and after the storms and the crises that come and the whole idea of of journeys and using place to do that we're we're looking at in quite an innovative way so I've had time to sort of put together things like saying these school teachers even if it's just on on a day or a weekend will need a journey and even if it's just up a hill where they get out out of breath. We need an element of physical discomfort there to match the emotional chaos and the social discomfort that sometimes school principals have to go through in their jobs because physical discomfort is, is less likely. So I think this is something that will stretch these, these, these educators' minds.
0: So it's something about um, stepping just outside of one's comfort zone?
12: absolutely and it's it's ways of doing that in a way that doesn't threaten people Mm. and that's always a hard thing and again uh, and again you know you have to think very holistically about so much in your life and and what connections are there because if you look at creativity and you look at people who've really moved society on what they really did was one they looked to nature and they looked to to the role of place whether it was Einstein or whether it was um who else I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of creative people like the guy who wrote um Tom Sawyer and, and people like that and Huck Finn and Mark Twain. That's it. All these people cite place and nature as being key influences. And I don't think we've capitalized upon that enough within education, even with the growth in this country of forest schools. I feel it's, it's at a very basic
0: level. You also are a believer in getting children outside, um, perhaps out of their comfort zone, but there's something else that happens outside for, for um, students.
12: Yes, you're absolutely right I mean, the best way I can describe this is If you go outside with a bunch of friends and have a cup of coffee outside, look at how you sit, look at how you interact, what sort of conversations do you have, and compare that to inside, particularly in a staff room. And then you can actually relate that to the children with whom you work. And that's why maybe when you take a class of children outside, they behave differently. Sometimes a good class can be surprisingly challenging outside, and sometimes individuals who are very challenging in doors absolutely flourish outside but what it does mean is that the you, you have to in a sense redefine your relationships with children and I think as an educator that's moved me on professionally more than anything
0: else I've had to deal with. At the end of the Drover's journey I asked two of Spagrian's board members to comment on some of the highlights of the organization and what lies ahead. First Linda Cracknell a writer and teacher based in Aberfeldy She's followed by Spagriam founder Joyce Gilbert, now an educator with the Royal Scottish Geographical Society.
6: Um, I think in terms of uh, the sort of changes in that period, I think the spreading of the network, and it's involved... I don't know if anyone's actually quantified the number of people that have been touched by it, but it's it's a lot of people, and it's gone through um, lots of different periods of engagement where some groups of people have been more engaged than others... But I would I would suspect that it's engaged with several hundred people. It's a, it's a kind of network that's grown organically, that's kind of shifted. It's a, kind of I picture it a bit like an amoeba that's sort mm. of <laughs> shifting shifting edges. Um, and the Cairns along the way for me have probably been to do with the significant journeys. So the canoe journey, the journey um, on the on the boat leader off the west coast, which. Actually, I was going to use the words under sail, but actually we hardly sailed because it was such glorious weather, there was no wind, but still a very significant journey around the islands. Um, and I know that there's been a lot of other activity that I haven't been so engaged in, particularly to do with um, courses for teachers on on Egg and um, on Summer Isles, and I haven't been as involved with that, but I know that those have been significant markers along the route and have given Spagrian a kind of... Um, Authority's probably putting it a bit too strongly, but a sort of moral moral grounding Mm. um, in its experience in providing a sort of very multidisciplinary platform to engage with outdoor experience.
1: Every time I meet people in the network, I have to stop myself from planning another project because they have such energy about them and you can just see people as they come together. There's there's a whole project just in four people meeting. And I... one of the original members of the Spagrian group that travelled down the River Spay once said to me, forget the big conferences, it's the accumulation of small calies that will change this planet. And by small calies, he meant groups of people getting together and coming up with really creative ideas. And that's what I see in this group in Spagrian. They're incredibly creative people. And I think with all the challenges we face with climate change and um, all these problems with economics and the banking system and so on, we're going to need really creative people, and we need people drawn from all sorts of different backgrounds. And the other thing I think is really brilliant just in the last few years is that there's been a fantastic intergenerational aspect to Spay which has been growing. So we have people on this journey this week that are in their early 20s, and then we've also got people who are in their early 70s or late 60s you know so it's that um, span of experience and energy and dynamic that i think will take spagrian into this next phase
0: and maybe save the world absolutely thanks Joyce. we'd like to thank all of those who shared reflections on the drover's journey thanks as well to spagrian who made the journey possible you can learn more about spagrian at their website www.spagrian that's spelled out S-P-E-Y-G-R-I-A-N dot org dot U-K. Special thanks to Kaylee Menage, whose album Plaids and Bandanas traced musical connections between the Drovers in Scotland and Cowboys in North America, and whose music provided the background for this program. Well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnane House Highland Music Recording. Thanks again to our participants in Spagrian's Drover's Journey and their sponsors. Thanks to Rob Gibson of Kaley Minaj for permission to use their 1998 recording, Plaids and Bandanas. And thanks always to our WERU members. Thanks to our underwriters at Maine Community Foundation and to Joel Mann for assistance in engineering. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you happy trails if a droving you should go.